Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Former NFL quarterback Joe Namath is known for many things, but one of them is the statement, when you win, nothing hurts. The pleasure of winning overpowers the pain of aching muscles and bruised bodies. This week I've been struck by the pain of life in a fallen world everywhere. A wife whose husband rejected her for another woman is left with a shattered heart and four boys to care for. This week, the father upon whom she leaned for strength died of a heart attack. A broken-hearted church elder told me that two of his daughters had just come out, one declaring that she is bisexual, the other introducing her female lover to the rest of the family. Another brother's hope that his adult daughter might be moving back toward Christ has been crushed. Every day, more precious teen girls are deceived by woke ideologues into thinking their problems of puberty are caused by being a boy in a girl's body, then having their breasts carved off by doctors in the name of affirming care. And no one seems to care about putting a stop to this abusive practice of children. Some bear the physical pain of aging, frequently aching and no longer able to even get a good night's sleep. The suffering brought about by sin in this fallen world is everywhere. If you are disheartened, battered, discouraged, or weary from fighting the good fight because of all the heartache and spiritual bruising, my hope is that this episode will give such a clear picture of the colossal triumph of Messiah Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and our part in that victory that in some small way the pain is lessened because we grasp the enormity of our win. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode number 52 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Today we come to the final episode in our series, Loving Jesus More Because I Know Him Better, by examining Jesus' title, The Prince of Peace. Let's read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The coming of Messiah Jesus into the world is not just to give sinners the password to heaven. He came to establish a kingdom, to take over the rule of earth. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The Prince of Peace will overthrow the Prince of the Power of the Air, see Ephesians 2.2, and he will rule instead. Notice this word increase, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This statement perfectly corresponds to Jesus' description of his followers' mission to spread Christ's kingdom of righteousness over earth. For example, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6.10, pray then like this. 
May your kingdom of righteousness, that is, come. That is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, where there is perfect righteousness. Or Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've won the victory. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Or Matthew 9, 31 through 32, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The gospel, that is the good news, is that Jesus, the second Adam, is now doing what the first Adam was supposed to do, exercising dominion over the earth for God. As you've heard me say often, the gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of the kingdom, not of just personal private salvation. The gospel of the kingdom has four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, not just two, fall and redemption. Keep that in mind and we'll explain it in a moment. The title Prince of Peace points unequivocally to this four chapter narrative. Scripture begins with the creation of all things and ends with the renewal of all things. Because this podcast is about our mission as Christ followers, I want my hearers to understand that our generation has inherited a Christianity that historically has often reduced the gospel to just two of those four chapters, which has damaged our understanding of our mission. Let's look at the words of several scholars who point out this failure in the Bible-believing church. The first is my friend Hugh Welchel, the founder and executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. He writes, In the United States during the first half of the 19th century came the great religious revival called the Second Awakening. It was led by individual preachers such as Charles Finney, Lyman Beecher, and Peter Cartwright. The revivalist preacher's view of the gospel focused on personal sin and individual salvation. Come forward and be saved. Pray to receive Christ. Walk with Jesus. Share your faith with other people became the common language of the Christian faith. While the movement had substantial positive effects, it led to a truncated gospel. Its view of Scripture can be called the two-chapter gospel. In the two-chapter gospel, chapter 1 presents our problem, separation from God because of our sin. Chapter 2 presents the solution. Jesus Christ has come into the world to bring salvation and reunite us with God through his work on the cross. While sin and salvation are undeniable realities, they are not the complete gospel. In this abridged version of the gospel, Christianity becomes all about us. The two-chapter gospel ignores creation and final restoration. It leaves out God's reason for our creation, the cultural mandate, and the Christian final destination. We must understand the Bible teaches salvation not as an end in itself. It is a means to fulfill God's ultimate plan for man on his earth. From Welchel's book, How Then Should We Work? Dr. Tim Keller, former New York City pastor and professor of Westminster Seminary, describes the same historic loss of the four-chapter gospel. He writes, Some conservative Christians think of the story of salvation as the fall, redemption, heaven. In this narrative, the purpose of redemption is escape from this world. Only saved people have anything of value. 
while unbelieving people in the world are seen as blind and bad. If, however, the story of salvation is truly creation, fall, redemption, restoration, then things look different. In this narrative, non-Christians are seen as created in the image of God and given much wisdom and greatness within them, even though the image is defaced and fallen. Moreover, the purpose of redemption is not to escape the world, but to renew it. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. A third scholar, Michael Metzger, is concerned about the way the two-chapter gospel has lost the dignity of every human as God's image-bearer. He writes, For 2,000 years, the gospel was recited in four chapters, entitled Creation, Fall, Redemption, and the Final Restoration. It reminds us that we were made in the image of God. This gospel started in Genesis 1 and can be found in the Apostles and Nicene Creed. Tragically, 200 years ago, the story was edited to two chapters, the fall and redemption. The opening chapter of creation was largely forgotten. The new starting line was Genesis 3, the story of the fall. It reminds people that they are fallen sinners. We're both made in God's image and sinners. The four-chapter gospel elevates our worth as image bearers of God. The two-chapter story focuses only on our deficiency. Another scholar, Al Walters, summarizes this full four-chapter gospel this way. What was formed in creation has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. That from his work entitled Creation Regained. If Isaiah 9's title of Messiah Jesus is the Prince of Peace, a ruler of a kingdom of righteousness that will spread over earth, establishing a never-ending kingdom, points to the four-chapter gospel. The term peace, the Hebrew term being shalom, points even more clearly to this same four-chapter narrative, which includes the restoration of creation. Let's dig into the meaning of this rich Hebrew word shalom. Cornelius Plantiga, in his book, Engaging God's World, explains the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the arch of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. Those words from his book, Engaging God's World. Shalom, it could be said, is the Old Testament word for the restoration that the Messiah would bring. Remember how we came to understand poverty a few months ago from a biblical perspective as the fracturing of the four relationships of life with God, with ourselves, with other people, and with the creation, all brought about by mankind's sin? Messiah Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings restoration of all four broken relationships. 
Again, Colossians 1, 19 through 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The entire world in all its glory and pain needs the redemption that will bring shalom. The world isn't divided into the secular realm and the sacred realm, with redemptive activity confined to the sacred zone. The whole world belongs to God. The whole world has fallen, and so the whole world needs to be redeemed. Every square inch, as Abraham Kuyper said, the whole creation is a theater for the mighty works of God, first in creation and then in recreation, stated by Herman Bobink. Messiah Jesus comes to inaugurate and eventually consummate his kingdom of righteousness. In fact, the coming of the kingdom of God is just the New Testament way of spelling shalom. So let's get practical about the impact of understanding that Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. First, it becomes clear that our 9 to 5 vocation, which isn't really 9 to 5 of most people I know, but our vocation is central to God's cosmic purposes. If God's mission for individual Christians is primarily to build a relationship with someone at work so he will accept Jesus' gift of the password to heaven, our actual 40 hours of work spent each week are utterly insignificant, except to earn some money to give to missionaries and preachers to proclaim the gospel. Now, let me say that building a relationship with others to lead them to Christ is positively a central and the most foundational part of our mission. The best way to spread Christ's righteous kingdom is to lead someone to faith in Christ who then surrenders to Christ's lordship. However, and it's a big however, this two-chapter view of the gospel is a horrible distortion. It ignores the original purpose God had for creating us, spelled out in Genesis 1, to exercise dominion for him over his good earth. The coming of the Messiah does not abrogate this original calling. Discipleship doesn't start in Matthew 28, but Genesis 1. In fact, the exact opposite is the case. Our purpose is to seek first the spread of Christ's kingdom of wholeness, rightness, restoration over the earth. What better way to spread righteousness over the earth than for every Christian to perform his vocational calling righteously all day long, five days a week? Cornelius Plantiga gives a picture of what this might look like in today's world. He writes, perhaps a Christian would shape the occupation of quality control supervisor by encouraging whistleblowers instead of retaliating against them. Perhaps a Christian would shape the occupation of computer repair technician by doing top-notch diagnosis in order to save the customers the expense of further unnecessary repairs. Perhaps the Christian would shape the occupation of CEO of a major airline by telling the customers the truth about flight cancellations and delays. In any case, occupational reformers serve the kingdom of God as surely as a Billy Graham crusade does. Let's look at a real example of a man spreading the kingdom of righteousness in his workplace through his vocational calling. Wayne Alderson was the vice president of operations at Pitron Steel during a time of real hostility in his company between labor and management. Putting his Christian faith to work, Alderson realized that as the top manager on the floor, he needed to be much more intentional about treating the laborers with the dignity that the image bearers of God deserved. Here are just a couple of the things he did. 
First, in a work environment where it was understood that management never mixes with labor, Alderson determined to learn the names of the individual laborers and began walking through the plant daily to chat with men as they work. Second, in his steel plant, just like the old cowboy days when the good guys wore the white hats, it was understood that management wore the white work helmets. Laborers wore black helmets. So Alderson painted his white helmet black. Third, Alderson noticed that Sam Piccolo, the labor union president and leader on the floor, had no teakwood office like the management had. In fact, the only office he had was the cab of his crane. Alderson saw that as a slur on Piccolo's leadership, an insult to his dignity, and got him a real office in which to meet with his men. Fourth, Alderson began standing at the company gate like a pastor standing at the church door greeting the parishioners after the service. Wayne offered his hand and personally thanked each man he could for his day's work. Eventually, Alderson's actions dissolved the labor management hostility that had led to an 84-day strike, and the strike ended. Let's look at just a few of the righteousness values, you might call them, that need to be spread in every workplace. Number one, as we referred to, every worker, student, manager, and customer is made in God's image and therefore should be treated with dignity and respect. In James 3, you see the abuse of this principle. James writes, We use the tongue to bless our Father God, and we use the same tongue to curse our fellow men who are all created in God's image. Number two, vocational success comes from serving others well, an expression of the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Selfishness never works in the workplace. Proverbs 11.26 says, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Number three, economic efficiency is vital to competing well enough to have an organization, but it must not come through unfair wages. Proverbs 22.6, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Number four, success usually requires some unpleasant work, and Christians ought to be the first to volunteer for it. Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Number five, financial integrity and honesty are of utmost importance. Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Number six, making moral compromises are never worth it. Proverbs 15, 27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. When we embrace the full four-chapter gospel, understanding that Messiah Jesus' mission for us is shalom, restoring broken dignity, reconciling broken relationships, revitalizing broken business ethics as a primary way of spreading righteous behavior across the earth, the passion for our work can be renewed. Every decision you make to treat another with dignity, serve others, treat the less fortunate with compassion, do the job no one else wants to do, to keep your word even when it is costly, to argue for the morally right decision, every one of those actions matters eternally. You are doing what you were created for, exercising dominion over this earth for the high king. 
There is a second great benefit to understanding the four-chapter gospel story. The fourth chapter, Restoration, which pictures the full reign of the Prince of Shalom, can open our eyes to how big a win Jesus' victory really is. Paul describes the future that awaits believers, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. The Old Testament prophets like Isaiah longed for and foresaw the day when the curse of sin on creation would be fully reversed. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. God would shake his people free from their enemies, just as he had done in Egypt. In the new age, God's people will respond with glad obedience, the rich helping the poor, the strong helping the weak. As God's grace spreads across the land, the lame will begin to dance. The blind will gaze at the world they have never seen before. The deaf will hear the song of a lark. Covenant obligations broken and forgotten will be fulfilled. In a word, the prophets longed for shalom. In that day, God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This text always makes my mind return to the scene from The Lord of the Rings. Just after the climax of the story, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he had thought, but alive. He cries out, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question inside Christ's kingdom is yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. But something even greater than ending pain will take place. Not only will all pain be removed, it will be reversed. C.S. Lewis wrote, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. In some mysterious way, pain will work backwards. The immeasurable suffering of being paralyzed, experienced by Johnny Erickson Tata, will be transformed into a depth of joy in running and swimming and dancing with a restored body in eternity, a depth of joy she could never know had she not experienced paralysis. In the restored kingdom, every former agony will work backward to become a greater joy. The universe wins in this battle with sin. May contemplating the greatness of the wind that is coming lift the cloud of darkness, at least for a moment, and make the heartaches of spiritual battle hurt less. To summarize this episode, just as Joe Namath recognized 
that the pleasure of winning can help overcome the aches, pains, and bruises of a hard-fought football game, this episode began with the recognition that we live in a fallen, sinful world that seems to be getting darker as the culture's biblical worldviews are increasingly lost. Not only do we experience the daily lament of watching our culture destroyed, but the pain brought to the world by our race's rebellion is felt in our own experiences as well. The pain of broken relationships is real. The heartache of seeing loved ones we pray for regularly reject Christ is defeating. The pain we see our loved ones bear, an eight-year-old I know has been to five funerals in his short life, is disheartening. And physical bodies that break down with age bring a constant stream of aches and fears into our lives that weighs down our souls. But God has provided treatment for our despair. It is hope. It is the certainty that one day the coming win will be so comprehensive that contemplating that day can overpower, just for a few moments perhaps, the pain. We saw that the term prince points to the fact that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, that the concept of the increase of the Messiah's government in this text perfectly corresponds to Jesus' kingdom of righteousness spreading over the earth. And that's all just from the term prince. The term peace, shalom, makes the scope and awe of this coming kingdom even greater. Shalom means that everything broken by sin will be fixed. Sin's consequence of poverty in all the relationships of life will be restored with God, with ourselves, with others, with creation. We noted two results of understanding Jesus as the Prince of Shalom and recovering the four-chapter gospel. First, we saw the central role that our vocations have in spreading righteousness over the earth, exercising dominion for God as Adam was supposed to do, all over the globe from nine to five, five days a week in our vocational work. What better way to spread the kingdom of righteousness than through what Christians do all across the globe in their vocational work? We identified six expressions of righteousness to be pursued at work. Human dignity, serving others, just wages, enduring unpleasantness, financial integrity, and moral uprightness. The second result of understanding Jesus as the Prince of Shalom is hope. Jesus' comprehensive win over sin and all the agony and destruction that have come upon the world does not just mean that all pain and suffering will end. It means that in some mysterious way in the restored kingdom, every former agony will work backward to become a greater joy. For further prayerful thought, number one, how does Jesus' title, the Prince of Peace, reinforce the truth that the gospel has four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and not just two, fall and redemption? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Some of you have graciously asked how you might support the podcast financially. That would enable us to reach more men with it. In the show notes, there's a link to enable you to make an online contribution should you decide to do so. 
Next week's podcast, which as always will come out Sunday evening, will be Christmas evening. The episode is entitled The Incarnation and Our Mission as Men. We will examine at least three ways that understanding the Incarnation helps us better achieve the mission Christ has assigned to us. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. Thank you for joining us for today's episode.